It's been good already tonight, hasn't it? My goodness, thank you for the music. Thank you, Brother Zach. Thank you, young people. I've sensed the Spirit of God at work tonight, and I trust that He's going to continue working. Uh, Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be here and for the privilege to preach in this pulpit. And I have been overjoyed at what the Lord has done over the last several days. Thank you for being faithful and in your place and so attentive to the preaching of your word. And I look forward to what God is going to do in the few moments that we're going to share together. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go with me this evening to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I really enjoy doing is getting around friends and family and sharing memories and telling stories. Uh, John Meadows and I went to college together. We have enjoyed telling some stories this week. And uh, Tessie Searing grew up in my hometown of Midland, Texas, and is close family friends with our family. We have been for a long time, and we've enjoyed telling some stories after church. Now, sometimes when we'll tell a story, we'll start at, how about that time? How about that time you said that? How about that time you did that? I've often wondered if Peter and John, when they were older, didn't get together and share some stories about their time with Jesus. If Peter didn't say, hey, John, how about that time we were fishing? And Jesus came and took over our boat and told us to cast our nets on the other side, and we caught a great draft of fishes, and that was the day we decided to follow Jesus. And Peter said, how about that day? There was 5,000 hungry people, and Jesus fed them all with 5,000. What a day that was. And John said, do you remember that day in Bethany? How about that time when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? And Peter, I will never forget your mouth almost hit the floor when that mummy came walking out of that tomb. And then I wonder if Peter didn't start ribbing John a little bit. And he said, "Uh, hey, John, how about that time you and your brother tried to call down fire on those folks? And, And what about that time you had your mama ask Jesus if you guys could sit on his right and left hand side? And John said, Peter, you really don't want to go here, do you? How about that time you were on the Mount of Transfiguration talking when you should have been quiet and God the Father said, hush up and let Jesus speak? Or how about that time you got out of the boat and walked on water and you sank? I'll never forget, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. Hey, Peter, how about that time Jesus told you you were full of the devil? How about that time the rooster crowed? Do you remember that? And I imagine Peter looks over and says, hush up, John, let's just talk about Pentecost. And maybe for a little while they talked about the days of the early church. And maybe things got kind of serious when Peter said, hey, John, how about that time uh, Herod Agrippa I went on a rampage? And he killed your brother James. And he put me in jail. You know, I'm an old man and my memories are getting kind of fuzzy. Why don't you pull out Dr. Luke's scroll and let's read about it. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw he pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison. And delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, And a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. 
And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord hath brought him out of the prison, And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea in their abode. Now before we get into Peter's story tonight, just a few pieces of background information. Number one, God is still writing stories about His churches. The Acts of the Apostles may have ended with their death in the first century, but the Acts of the Continuing Christ and the Acts of His local churches are still ongoing, and Gateway Baptist Church is writing a chapter even to this day. So God is still writing stories about His churches. Number two, God is doing a new thing, but He often does it in a familiar way. And there is a pattern established in Acts chapter 12 that God repeats over and over and over and over and over again in the lives of the people that He greatly uses. And many of you are in the middle of this pattern even tonight. So as we talk about Peter's story this evening, I want you to think about your story, and I would remind you that your story is just as important to God as Peter's was. So we're not just telling his story, we're telling the story of every person God uses. Now Peter, tell us about that time. Peter would say in the first place, we faced intense pressure. We faced intense pressure. We read in verse 1 about Herod the king. Now there were several Herods in the New Testament. This is Herod Agrippa I. And history tells us that Herod was not well liked by Rome, so he really needed to curry favor with the Jewish people. He needed to form as many alliances as possible so he could hold on to his power. So he came up with a plan to please the Jews, and that was the persecution of the church. We read in verse 1 that Herod stretched forth his hand. It means literally to throw over your hand. The hand symbolized the power and authority and might of the king. And he threw it out against the church. He wants to inflict pain upon the church. He wants to hit the church with all that he has. Is probably the best way to say it. Herod stretched forth his hand to vex the church. Now we don't use that word vex often anymore. It's an old word, but my grandma used to say it. And if she said, boy, you're vexing me, I knew I was about to find myself on the wrong end of a switch. Can anybody relate tonight? Here the word means to harm, to hurt, or to injure. 
So see the picture. The king of Judea, the most powerful man in the land, is throwing everything he can, all his power, all his authority, all his influence, so that he might harm and hurt and injure the church. And can you even imagine, ladies and gentlemen, the pressure? Ladies, imagine going to the market one day and looking over your shoulder thinking you may be followed. Imagine meeting in secret churches scared that someone's going to burst in the door and drag your preacher to jail. Imagine thinking that the most powerful man in the, in the nation hates you and wants to kill you and wants to harm you. That's the pressure that they were facing. Then the Bible says, and he killed James. Now we're talking here about James the Apostle. Later in the passage, we'll read about James who was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Two different Jameses and a lot of different Herods, okay? We're talking James the Apostle. This is James of James, Peter, and John fame. If you remember, Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he took Peter, James, and John. When he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and went a little further, he took these three, Peter, James, and John. So James is not just a follower of Christ, he's an apostle. Not just an apostle, he's part of that inner circle, part of the big three. And now he's gone. Herod killed him with a sword. It probably means he beheaded him. Interestingly, James was the first of the apostles to die. His brother John would be the last of the apostles to die. Now, when Herod saw that the Jews were happy that number three was dead, he got in his mind that he would arrest number one, Peter. This is now the third time that Peter has been arrested if you studied the book of Acts. He was put in jail in Acts chapter 4, threatened and sent away. Then in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are put in prison and the angel of the Lord lets them out. So here he is in jail again, something of a jailbird preacher. Herod's not playing before. He knows Peter's broken out before, so he puts four quaternions of soldiers in charge of him. That's four units of four soldiers, 16 soldiers to keep track of one man, if you can imagine. The Bible tells us they bound him with two chains and made him sleep between two soldiers. And as soon as Easter or Passover was finished, so was Peter. He meant to kill him. So imagine you're a member of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Herod has his sights set on you. You're his number one agenda. He's already killed James. Number three is gone. He has number one in jail. I imagine number two wasn't feeling so good about this time. The church was under immense pressure. Now here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. As you follow Christ, you will face seasons of immense pressure. God's goal for you is much bigger than an easy life. He wants you to live an effective life, and pressure is a part of that. No one is exempt from suffering. No one is exempt from hardship and trials. It may come in the form of health challenges. It may come in the form of financial reversals. It may come from within the church, some problem you have with a brother or sister of Christ. It may certainly come from the pagan culture all around us. Christian Intense pressure does not mean that you are doing something wrong. It may mean you're doing a lot of things right. Peter and John weren't doing anything wrong. James wasn't doing anything wrong. And if the top three weren't exempt from pressure in their lives, neither are you and neither am I. We've had a lot of pressure over the last few years, haven't we? It's been very difficult. To be honest, the last two years of my life have been the most trying years I've ever lived. On the heels of leading the church through our pandemic, we had a major fire in one of our buildings that shut down 50% of our building capacity. Things were just starting to get back to normal. At that same time, within a couple of weeks, we got the news that now our second adoption had failed. 
Over the next eight months, my wife and I would have two painful miscarriages. We would have an incredibly difficult incident with one of our deacons. After all that was over, I developed ulcerative colitis. I lost 20 pounds. I couldn't eat anything but rice for six weeks. Because my body was starved of so many of the nutrients that you need to feel good, I went through in a season of emotional darkness that I can't hardly describe. I felt like my body was breaking and my mind was about to come undone. And I'm not complaining here. I know many of you have gone through much worse seasons of pressure than what I've gone through. During that time, when I was going through emotional darkness, there was a quote by Hudson Taylor that meant a lot to me. Taylor was a great missionary in China. While he was there, four of his children died, two of them in the same year that his beloved wife Maria died. He lived through the Boxer Rebellion in which 58 of his adult missionaries were killed and 21 of their children were killed. Can you even imagine? Here's what Hudson Taylor wrote about pressure. It does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies. Whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer His heart. In the middle of my pain and emotional darkness, that statement ministered to my heart. I did not want the pressure to come between me and God. I wanted the pressure to press me nearer to His heart. And folks, I'm just getting to know many of you, and I don't know what your pressure is, but I do want to know tonight, where does the pressure lie? Are you so overwhelmed with what's happening in your life that you've stopped reading your Bible? Are you so stressed out that you've stopped spending time in prayer? I don't know what the pressure is, but I came to ask you tonight, where does the pressure lie? Don't let it press you away from the Lord. Let it press you to the Lord, nearer to His heart. Some people get away from God during a season of trial. I've never understood that. That's like being sick and walking away from a doctor. It's like being ignorant and walking away from a teacher. It's like being lonely and walking away from a true friend. Oh, if you're in a season of pressure and trial, don't walk away from God. Run to God. Let the pressure press you nearer His heart and you will find in Him a friend that stays closer than a brother. As we go through the Christian life, God has more in store for you than an easy life. He wants you to have an effective life. And pressure is a big part of that. And Peter said we face intense pressure. And you will too. Well, what comes next, Peter? Well, not only did we face intense pressure, but we offered intense prayer. This entire ugly story turns in verse 5, and I want you to see it. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. Notice this next phrase, but prayer was made. But prayer was made. Yes, we face intense pressure, but that intense pressure pressed us to intense prayer. And if you're facing a season of pressure tonight, there is nothing God wants more than than for that pressure to drive you to your knees in prayer. This is one of the greatest prayer days in the history of the early church, and they teach us just a few principles about prevailing prayer. And I want you to notice them. Number one, they prayed first. They prayed first. Their leader's been locked up in jail. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't organize a protest. They didn't organize an army to get Peter out. What was their first response, church? Prayer was made. I want you to think about the last time you faced pressure in your life. Was prayer your first response? 
Or was it your last resort? Was prayer the steering wheel that you used to get you through that season of pressure? Or or was it your spare tire to be used in emergency cases only? When trouble comes, where do you turn first? Do you turn on the TV so you might numb the pain? Guys, do you turn to pornography or grab a beer? Do you unload on your parents or unload on your spouse or friend? Here's the point. The first place you turn when trouble comes is an indicator of what you really trust. It shows what you trust to help you cope with the trial and what you trust to get you through the trial. Where you go first shows where your faith really lies. Let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you parents be insulted? If one of your children had a financial need and it was within your means to meet that need and your child knew it, but that child went all around town asking everybody else for help until they finally came to you. And by the time they finally got there, you wouldn't be too thrilled about being number 67 on the list, would you? And sometimes I wonder how God feels about being our backup plan. About how God feels about being our last resort. You have a God who has all power at His disposal and there is nothing you can take to Him tonight that is any bigger than He is. I like what Moody said. Some people think that God does not like to be troubled by our constant coming and asking, but the way to trouble God is not to come at all. He wants you to come. So here's my challenge for you, church. The next time pressure comes, make prayer your first priority, not your last response. The early church prayed first. I noticed not only was prayer first, it was fervent. Because it says in verse 5, prayer was made without ceasing. Now these words, without ceasing, indicate not only the quantity of prayer, but also the quality of their prayer. The word has the idea of fervency. So when they got together to pray for Peter, they didn't pray half-heartedly. They didn't pray lethargically. They prayed fervently. I like what Jeremiah said, the Lord through Jeremiah. He said, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Let me ask you tonight about the fervency of your prayer. The greatest example of fervent prayer is the Lord Jesus. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. The writer of Hebrews there is talking about the garden of Gethsemane. You remember the story? Jesus kneels down and he is contemplating the cross and he's contemplating the cup. And the story goes that he prayed so fervently that the capillaries in his forehead burst and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Here's the idea. When the pressure went up, so too did the fervency of his prayers. Let me ask you, church, when's the last time you prayed with tears? We saw some of that tonight, thank God. When's the last time you prayed, God, save my lost loved one. God, send revival to my church. God, give me mercy in my trial. James says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So I take that to mean that half-hearted, lackadaisical prayer avails little. And it's time for us to get some fervency back in our prayer life, church. Prayer was first. Prayer was fervent. I notice this, their prayer was focused. Look again in verse 5. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. What did they pray? They prayed for him. So they didn't pray general prayers. Lord, bless our pastor Peter. 
No, no, no. They prayed very specific prayers. Lord, get Pastor Peter out of jail. They prayed focused prayers of intercession on Peter's behalf. I want you to think about your prayer life tonight. Can you imagine being God and listening to some of the things that we actually say when we're praying? Lord, bless all the missionaries in all the world. (laughs) And I wonder sometime what God thinks. Well, how do you want me to bless those missionaries? And how would you know and how would they know if those missionaries were blessed? And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I haven't heard anyone pray this this week. So that's why I'm going to say this one. Lord, be real to us. Well, what does that even mean? He is real. I promise you. I want to challenge you tonight to put some focus and concentration back into your prayer life. Learn to pray specific prayers that God can actually answer so that when he answers it, you can give him glory specifically. Can I challenge you, church? We haven't really prayed. If 15 minutes after your prayer time, you can't remember what you prayed for. What did you pray for this morning? What specifically and tangibly did you ask God to do in our midst tonight? Prayer should be specific. Prayer should be focused. Not only was prayer first and was prayer focused, I noticed this, their prayer was in faith. Now, they didn't have a lot of faith, did they? (laughs) Because when Peter showed up and he's knocking at the gate of the door and Rhoda comes to the gate and she goes back inside to tell him, hey, Peter's outside. Remember what they said? Girl, you're crazy. There is no way Peter's outside. It must just be his spirit. Now, they didn't have a a lot of faith, but at least they had the faith to ask. You know, just a little bit of faith in the right object can do a lot. Didn't Jesus say that faith the size of a mustard seed could move a mountain? To see a miracle in your life, you don't have to have a lot of faith. You do have to have a little faith in the right object. And you have to have at least enough faith to ask. I like what Newton said. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such... None can ever ask too much. So pray in faith. Prayer was first and prayer was focused and prayer was in faith. And I notice this prayer was in fellowship. Because it says at the end of verse 12, where many were gathered together praying. It wasn't just one or two people that got together for a prayer meeting. Many were gathered at the house of John Mark's mother so they might pray for Peter. Now, let me challenge you, church. If you study the book of Acts, you'll see that almost every time these believers get together, they're praying. The words pray, prayed, prayed are used 30 times in the book of Acts. We read that they prayed in the upper room. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in homes, in prisons, in public, in private. They prayed for healing, for wisdom, for the salvation of the lost, for boldness, for missionaries, and they prayed for each other. What the early church did for God, they did together, and they did through the power of prayer. Did you know that the Bible says there is power on earth when believers agree together? There is power in heaven on, uh, when believers on earth agree together in prayer. There's power when we pray together like we just saw at this altar a few moments ago. Corporate prayer has at least two benefits. Number one, it allows us to bear burdens. And I thank God for the burdens that have been borne even this evening. But number two, it allows us to share blessings. See, when you pray for me and God answers that prayer... We both get to have the joy of an answered prayer, don't we? We both have a story to tell. And God gets more glory and praise for answering the prayer because more people prayed for it. That's why there's power in corporate prayer. I like what Samuel Chadwick wrote. 
He said, there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Of Abraham pleading for Sodom. Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night. Moses standing in the breach. Hannah intoxicated with sorrow. David heartbroken with remorse and grief. Jesus in sweat and blood. Add to the list from the records of the church your personal observation and experience. And always there is the cost of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. D.L. Moody said every movement of God in history can be traced to a kneeling figure. And I know we're facing pressure and we're going to face more pressure in the days ahead. But let's offer even more intense prayer to counteract that pressure. Let's pray first and let's pray focused and fervent in faith and in fellowship with one another. Let me tell you this. If pressure presses you to your knees, pressure has been a great friend to you. Because to press you to your knees is to press you into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said. I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. So Peter, how did you respond to a season of intense pressure? Well, we offered intense prayer. There's a third part to the pattern, however. Intense pressure led to intense prayer, which led, thank God, to intense power. This is a story of God's power on display through the answer of prayer. Now, we're going to see power unleashed in at least three ways, and you've listened well. Stay with me tonight. Number one, they experience God's power for peace in prison. And I like this. Go back to verse 6, if you would. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. You get the picture here? Herod is just waiting for the Sabbath to pass, for the sun to come up, so that Herod can separate Peter's head from his shoulders. This is the night of Peter's death. And what is he doing? He is sleeping like a baby. He is in perfect peace. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing I want more in my life than the peace of God. How about you? I'm not asking God to decrease the pressure I'm just asking God to give me some peace in the pressure. Whatever Peter had that enabled him to sleep the night before his death, at least his expected death, I want that too. Did you know that there is a direct correlation between prayer and peace? Listen to Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Listen to me, church. You can have the peace of God. The only way you can get it is through prayer. Let me ask you tonight, what's on your worry list? Say, I don't have a worry list. Yes, you do. You You didn't write it down, but you run over that worry list more than you run over everything else. You know what Paul's saying? If you want to have the peace of God, replace your worry list with a prayer list and let God worry about it. He gave the church power for peace in prison. I notice this, he gave the church power for deliverance over their difficulties. Peter was delivered from prison. Think about it. Sixteen soldiers, two chains, a locked cell and prison gate were no no match for the power of God in response to the prayers of God's people. 
Here's the point. Think of the thing you're facing tonight. It could be over in a moment if God so willed it. That's the kind of power your God has. You serve a God of unbelievable power, and when He decides to act, there is nothing, not 16 soldiers, not a locked gate, not chains. There is nothing that can stand in your God's way. And when He decides to act, no one can stop Him. He gave Peter deliverance from prison. I noticed this, the church was delivered from Herod. Now, this is my favorite part of the story, and I want you children and young people to listen carefully to this part. You're going to like it. Verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. You remember that unstoppable king who was throwing out his hand to vex the church? He was put down in a millisecond. Now listen, there was a brief moment in church history when Herod Agrippa I was the most unstoppable obstacle in the way of the church. But he went down as a piece of lint on the pages of human history, no more than worm food. And I just came to ask you tonight, does anybody still believe that God is bigger than your problem? Does anybody still believe that your God, whom you serve, is able to deliver you? He gave the church deliverance from prison, deliverance from Herod. I notice, lastly, he gave the church power for proclamation and multiplication. Look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and was multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had... Uh, fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, we'd already read in verse 18 that as soon as Peter was released from jail and Herod couldn't find him, there was no small stir among the soldiers. (laughs) I love that. No small stir among the soldiers. Let me ask you, church, when's the last time that our prayers caused a stir among our enemies? They had power with the soldiers. They had power with society. Because it says in verse 24 that the word of God grew and was multiplied. Now go home and study this later. But every time you read about the multiplication of the early church in Acts, it always followed a great trial. Mark it down. It was their grace under pressure that made Christianity attractive to the lost. It was the way that they responded to pressure and trial that gave them a witness in society. Can I tell you that it is our grace under pressure that still makes Christianity attractive to the lost? Pressure makes beautiful diamonds, and it makes beautiful Christians. Charles Spurgeon said, only great troubles can make great hearts. Here's the point. If you're in a season of difficulty, God is probably setting you up for the greatest season of fruitfulness in your life. And if you will lean to the Lord in your time of difficulty, the word of God will grow and multiply through your life. He gave them power for proclamation and multiplication with the soldiers, with society, and then also, lastly, with their fellow servants. We read about it in verse 25, but guess who happened to be in the home of John Mark when they had a prayer meeting and Peter showed up? Paul was there. He wasn't on one of his missionary journeys. He made a trip to Jerusalem and he was there when the church prayed and Peter got out of jail. 
Why does the writer of Acts give us that little detail about Paul being there? I'll tell you why. Because what happened in Peter's story inspired what would happen in Paul's story. Have you ever read Acts chapter 16? Paul at the midnight hour? He and Silas faced intense pressure. They were beaten and put in a jail cell in Philippi. What happened at the midnight hour? They offered intense prayer and praise. Just a few moments later, we read they experienced intense power. They were delivered from prison. They they were given power for proclamation and multiplication. The Roman soldier asked him, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved his entire household got saved tonight. The point is that God does a new thing, but He often does it in a familiar way. And what God did in Peter's story encouraged Paul for what he could do in his own story. And what's happening in your story, the pressure that you're facing, may be used of God to set up someone else in this faith family for the greatest season of fruitfulness and success that they've ever had. So here's the point. There is a pattern that God has always used in the lives of His people. He allows intense pressure. Why? So we will learn to pray intense prayers. So that on the other side of the prayers, we will have intense power and we'll be given a story of His glory to give to someone else. So don't buckle under the pressure. Let the pressure lead to the praying. And on the other side of the praying, you're going to see the power. You'll get a story in your life about God's glory. And one day you'll be able to look back and say, hey, how about that time? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for what you did in Peter's life. But I recognize you're doing a new thing. And you're still writing chapters in the book of your church. No doubt there are some people here going through a season of intense pressure tonight. And Satan would like to take that pressure and use it to divide them, to press them away from your heart. And I pray tonight they would make the commitment that their pressure is going to press them to your heart. Lord, would you convict us tonight about the matter of our prayerlessness, that it is often a last resort instead of a first response. And may each of us leave here with the abiding conviction that we will never have your power until we learn to pray. Oh, God, make your church a praying people again, even if pressure is the price. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to be honest with the Lord tonight. This is the last night of our revival. Be honest with the Lord and let Him work. How many of you would say this evening, the Lord has convicted me about my prayerlessness? And from now on, with God's help, I don't want prayer to be my last resort. I want it to be my first response. I want you to listen to this. I'm not asking you to commit to praying more tonight. We could all pray more. I'm asking you to make a concrete commitment. And here it is. That for the next 30 days, you will spend at least 15 minutes a day in fervent, focused prayer. You've been convicted tonight about your prayerlessness, but what are you going to do about it? Would you make the commitment? I'm not just going to let another sermon on prayer pass. I'm actually going to start praying. How many of you would take the challenge? For the next 30 days, I will spend at least 15 minutes a day in fervent, focused prayer. And if that's your commitment to the Lord tonight, would you lift your hand with mine? Now, looking around the room, that is well over two-thirds of the church that had their hands raised. 
and Gateway Baptist Church, you listen to me. If you keep those commitments, the next 30 days will be the most powerful days in the history of this church. It all begins with the praying church. How many of you would say, Brother Tyler, to be honest, I am going through a season of intense pressure right now. Would you lift your hand? God bless you. How do we respond to that? With prayer. So why don't you come tonight and find a way to this altar? If you'd like someone to pray with you as you come, just raise your hand and someone will meet you there. If you're a praying person, when we stand to our feet here in just a moment, I want you to look for those with their hands raised. And I want you to gather around them and pray together as a faith family for those going through pressure this evening. Now lastly, the most important prayer a person will ever pray is the sinner's prayer. When I was just a boy, I recognized that I was a sinner, separated from God and on my way to hell, but that God loved me and Jesus died for me and that he rose again. And in a very simple, childlike way, I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior and I asked him to forgive my sins. If you're here tonight and you have never prayed a prayer like this, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again. Come into my life, forgive my sins and give me eternal life. You could pray that prayer tonight. How many of you would say, Pastor Jillett, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I've never prayed a prayer like that, but tonight I'd like to. If that's you, would you lift your hand with mine? God bless you. I've never prayed a prayer like that, but tonight I'd like to. Pastor, would you please pray for me? If you raised your hand, would you just look up at me? Just look up. God bless you. Here in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. People will be across the front with an open Bible and they'll help you pray a prayer like that. They'll show you from God's word how you can be saved tonight. And as we stand and sing, I want you to leave your place and come tonight. Father, work in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray.